0: Thanks, team. Good morning, everyone. So as uh, Pastor Graham mentioned, we're picking back up the big reveal. That uh, big, ugly number two is kind of a joke there. Uh, Graham said, make sure it's got part two on it. And I did that, yeah, because uh, Charlie put so much effort into making the, the original series sort of media so beautiful. <laughs> It is it, it is an act of violence. It's where you've got an image and you put, you superimpose in PowerPoint an ugly font over the top. That's what I've done. I, I own it. Um, straight to DVD. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, why, I think, I mean, Pastor Graham, he didn't know I was going to put an ugly number two there. Uh, but he had a good reason for asking me to put a part two on the screen. And that's, you know, we've had some... I wouldn't say welcome interruptions to this series, but we've had some interruptions, haven't we? We've had some interruptions to life. Uh, and I was going at uh, at a, a, a slower pace, maybe, um, through the book because I thought it was important. Um, but we really don't have the time to continue now that we've lost all this time to take the same sort of verse-by-verse verse, uh, approach uh, so the way that we're going to sort of do it forthwith is, um, is I'm going to just hone in on um, some of the maybe key questions that people bring to the book of Revelation. One of the things that we did do uh, up until this point, um, which I think sets us up well for this, is you might remember, and I'm going to do a quick refresher, you might remember that uh, a lot of the series so far was really about how to read uh, Revelation, how to how to read Scripture um, in general. But I was really trying to give us a bit of a toolkit to read this very strange book. Um, so you might remember that... Um, It's an example of apocalyptic literature, and that does not mean that it is literature about the end of the world. The Greek word apocalypse means an unveiling. So John's revelation is an unveiling of something that God is doing. Um, It's got a lot of symbolism in it, as we know, uh, and there's often a heavenly mediator in apocalyptic literature. Um, and we might think from the bible of examples like the book of revelation but also daniel has lots of this apocalyptic stuff going on one of the things uh, that makes it a bit tricky and i'm going to highlight a bit so i'm just whizzing through we've we've done a lot of this one of the things that makes it a bit tricky for us maybe particularly as modern western people is we really want to tie up all the loose ends and um Gordon Fee, famous Pentecostal New Testament scholar, he says, actually, the way that apocalyptic literature works, it doesn't always let us do that. Um, they, uh, maybe in the first century uh, and before that, were a little bit more okay with just a bit of a mishmash of images that communicate something, whereas we, as you know, maybe post-enlightenment modern Western people, we like to think that we can master it all and know it all. Maybe doesn't work quite like that so here's some of our toolkit i'll whip through it quickly you'll remember that ancient letters were written to be read so it's not just like i uh, slide something into your inbox um, but it's like i go to tom and i say well i'm in jail if i'm john i'm in jail tom can you deliver this letter to the churches that really need to hear this message that i've got from god and tom thespian that he is he actually goes and sort of acts it out to the degree that he can uh one of the things that's really scary when you get into the greek manuscripts is they're not really punctuated uh and and partly (laughs) that's because there's this idea that i'll tell tom you know what the emphasis is going to be in this part tom i want you to do this um he would do a lot of that anyway he's very jazz hands kind of guy um i also talked about uh and You can go back and listen to uh, previous messages if you want some of these um, sort of tools explained a little bit more. But sometimes it's like John is seeing something in 8K, but he can only translate it and communicate it through high definition. So there's just a lot that's lost between what he's seen and what he's trying to express. And so he's turning up the notch on a whole heap of stuff to try and communicate something. And I talked about how I think some of the references to gems and jewels might be a bit like that, or rainbows that John's revelation makes, where it's kind of like John's going, you know, imagine the most amazing thing you've seen in the sky, or the most beautiful, shiny thing that you've ever seen in your life. It's like that. And does that mean that heaven doesn't have gemstones in it? I actually don't know, <laughs> but don't be uh, disappointed if you get there. And it's like, this isn't real lapis lazuli. This is just some heavenly technicolour blue thing. Um, so there's that going on. Time works a little bit differently. I'm moving uh, quickly for the sake of time. Um, I also talked about the way that John is paying his dues. He's a Jew and he's paying his Jews, And I did a little rap. I, you, I, you loved that. I remember that clearly. <laughs> Um, but there's a tradition, so I talked about uh, how some hip-hop artists will sample, say, soul music from decades before because they are not just communicating with the dope rhymes they're dropping. There I go again, I've got a <laughs> gift. Um, but sometimes there's something from the rhythm track, which might be James Brown'd, Brown Brown uh, sampled in the Notorious B.I.G. that communicates something of itself. So John's kind of He's standing in a tradition, in in an apocalyptic and a prophetic tradition. And actually, we saw that already in the weird sort of imagery that John's using to describe Jesus. So you might remember, and I used this image in a previous uh, message, where John actually sort of mashes up Jewish images for Yahweh, God the Father, and images that were for the messianic figure that would come in jesus and we understand as a christian why he might do that it's because he believed in the divinity of christ but that's quite a strange thing for a jew to do to sort of say here's a picture that's like a composite of god the father and um, this first century sort of backwater rabbi uh, that seems to be turning the world upside down so some of these tools, John's a Jew, paying his dues. I talked about the whole them, us and me thing. We've always got to remember as we read scripture generally, but I think particularly uh, John's revelation that if it didn't make sense to the original audience, the way that we're reading it, that's weird, right? (laughs) So it's weird if John is, and I use this as an example, if he's writing to churches in Asia Minor in the first century and he's like dropping references and this does get preached to Black Hawk helicopters because what does a Black Hawk helicopter mean to someone in the first century? We've got to kind of remember that there was an original audience, We've got to ask what it means to us as the people of God, and then it might say something specifically to us. And then I talked about dogma, doctrine, and opinion, so making sure that we don't kind of elevate all of our opinions up to issues that are issues of orthodoxy. So, like, because I think that it was a Black Hawk helicopter that Revelation's talking about. If you don't agree with me about the Black Hawk helicopter, you're not a Christian. Um, I hope that none of you spend too much time on Twitter because this kind of stuff happens all the time, but this is one that blessed me this morning. Um, s- someone in the United States wanted to uh, make some sort of comment ar- around whether Christian women should wear leggings or not, or yoga pants or not, um, and someone else has commented. Uh, they've picked up this same guy, a previous tweet that he's made about the Trinity, how there's room for charity and dialogue over Trinitarian matters. Meg from England maybe sees a bit of a double standard. She says, there's room for disagreement over the Trinity, but it's a sin for women to wear leggings. Uh, these are the kind of <laughs> mistakes that we, as a community of scripture readers, don't make. We don't have a statement of orthodoxy that includes something that's really just a matter of opinion, like whether women should be allowed to wear leggings or not in the family of God. (laughs) Issues of dogma that all Christians should believe will make sense across time and cultural contexts, right? We can go to something like the Apostles' Creed and say, I believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and someone in the second century in Turkey will go, yes, we believe the same thing. If we say to someone in the second century in Turkey, and I also believe that women shouldn't wear yoga pants, they'll go, what's yoga pants? (laughs) You kind of get the picture. I did decide, you know, I mean, I've got the microphone, so I can sort of do a little bit of do as I say, not as I do. But I've edited the Apostles' Creed just a little bit. Um, Here, so this is all standard, but I've gotten to the next page. And actually, if I'm gonna, it it should be that Christian men shouldn't wear leggings, all right? So, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, (laughs) and life everlasting, but not the male body in skin tight pants. Can I get an amen? No, there you go. So, We've done a lot of that. We might think of the words, and maybe you've heard uh, these words before, uh, a German uh, theologian from uh, the Protestant sort of era. He said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. We want to be a community of believers that have that sort of spirit of charity. There are some things that... We really believe in that. We nail to the ground, but we don't nail to the ground everything because we're aware that we're fallible, right? We're aware when we read a book like Revelation that we're reading a document that was difficult to understand even at the time, evidence of that being that John often says things like, let the reader <laughs> have discernment and that kind of thing because he's kind of, I mean, part of what's going on is he's aware... That there's something quite revolutionary (laughs) about his message. Uh, And people caught carrying a letter like his revelation could be in real trouble with the authorities if the contents are transparent to them. So some of it's a little bit in code, right? Following this so far. So there's mysterious images the whole way through. And this is basically where we left off and basically where we're going to pick up today so we left off uh, in chapter four an image a vision that John has of the throne room Um, I like this image even though it's weird because you can't really see who's on the throne Uh, John's um, message is, is I think this fits the message and we'll see how you can see these mysterious kind of angelic creatures and then there's 24 elders Um, and those 24 elders are often thought to be 12 representing israel uh, the 12 tribes of israel and 12 representing the new israel the church following so far that was a whirlwind um so here we're going to pick up revelation 5. you can uh, read along in your bible if you like i've got the niv on the screen here so it says then i saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides which was sealed with seven seals and i saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it in the jewish tradition uh, and the prophetic tradition uh, scrolls are representative of the word of god sort of in heaven as it were the word of god in that divine realm Um, and uh, the word of god that can speak to the events across eternity of both the lives of individuals but also of nations so a scroll as a kind of symbol for a prophet is a picture of god's foreknowledge of god's authority Um, it might very well speak to you know the rise and fall of empires and nations might speak to the eternal destiny of human beings Uh, a scroll can say all that Uh, John says here that this scroll was written on both sides, um, which really probably just means what you would guess that it means, is there was more to say than there was paper. Uh, So (laughs) scrolls tended to be written just on one side, but if you ran out of paper, you could turn it over. Also, specifically, there's a reference in Ezekiel to a scroll that was written on both sides um, of, and it was like kind of a scary scroll. So John doing the biggie small thing, paying his Jews, standing in traditions, kind of going, actually what's going to be in this scroll is some heavy stuff. Then John goes on, I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of those 24 elders, John says, says to him, Do not weep. See that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So having more than one seal speaks kind of to the importance of this scroll, speaks to the need of someone with authority to be able to access it what we see here in john's language is um, a situation where there is a scroll which um, contains such important information uh, such significant information that it can only be opened by the most significant and important figure that comes through doesn't it so so john is is hearing an elder say it's okay someone is in control (laughs) there is one here who knows the destiny of nations perhaps who knows the eternal destiny of individuals there is one here who qualifies to access this information that really only is in the hands of the most high there's that image again See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. John is using, again, language there that would be familiar to Israel, familiar to Jews and to Christians who were sort of grafted into the Jewish story. And the images, you might be familiar, uh, of the Messiah. So of the one that God sends to sort history out, and to vindicate Israel. So we've seen a mishmash of pictures of this figure in the book so far, even if we have to go back to uh, the series from last year. We see um, pictures actually of, of, of God or Jesus as riding on the clouds, Um, And that was a a common motif in ancient Near Eastern religion. Even the Babylonian Marduk, God Marduk, was spoken about as having ridden on the clouds. He had authority in the natural world. He brought rain, which was the source of life. We've seen uh, this figure of the son of man, a human one, that comes to do this important work that God is doing in the world. We see here the lion of the tribe of Judah reference, and we see the root of david referenced it's a compelling image isn't it a lion i don't know if you've ever seen a lion in in the flesh if you've ever heard a lion roar (laughs) you don't just hear it you feel it an understandable image for a divinity in the ancient world in palestine a lion was the boss (laughs) if there was any creature that you didn't want to run into In that part of the world, it was a lion. And so it's just an obvious choice to kind of grab as a picture for what God might look like. But the ancient world was full of this tendency to kind of grab for an animal (laughs) to represent uh, the deity, the God. This is um, depicting what they call the procession of Babylonian gods. Um, and so the Babylonians, you might know, and the Israelites, they had a sort of a history of rubbing up against one another. And Babylonians, like lots of ancient people, they imagined their God as powerful. Their imaginations were informed by the world around them. And so they grabbed a picture. power for their deity their deity was as strong as an ox their deity was as fearsome as a lion their deity was as regal as an eagle and we see this tendency even in other parts of the Bible don't you Uh, you might be familiar with uh, this mysterious section from Daniel's apocalyptic vision so he sees a the lion as a symbol of the Babylonian Empire, uh, the bear as a symbol of the Medo-Persian Empire, the leopard as a symbol of the Greek Empire, and then this really scary dragon sort of type creature as a symbol of the Roman Empire. And what's going on there is that Israel, through the inspiration of God and the authors of the scripture, is grappling with a reality uh, that God is revealing to them. Uh, that actually there are ways of being powerful in the world, of being strong in the world, which aren't really fitting <laughs> for God's people. Um, so whilst the, we'd, they would talk about the pagan nations, whilst the nations around them that didn't share uh, Yahweh as a God would worship these beasts, basically, that was somewhat... <laughs> off limits for israel the image of the lion of judas kind of a kind of a tricky one in some ways because you'll remember won't you from the old testament that god continually says i don't look like anything in the created world I don't, I, it's it's a sin actually it's against the law of israel to depict me as anything that you would come across the world and one of the theological sort of axes that <laughs> is getting worked out there i probably could have timed that transition a little bit better <laughs> to be honest my computer's just conked out on the uh, lectern there so i'm guessing my way through this a little bit um but there's this th- w- once you see it you can't unsee it that picture once you see it you can't unsee it but once you see this thing happening in israel's scriptures you can't unsee it that the um god's of the nations which are depicted as animals often become a symbol for their anti-god rulership right so that uh, if you uh, the reason I put Putin there actually when I I, I, I thought of this vi- uh, this image and when I went and looked for it lots of the hits that contain this image were around is this a real picture or not it's not a real picture uh, uh, Putin can do a lot of things, it would seem, but I don't think he can ride a bear. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> the bear? or <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Uh, uh, so, Putin's Putin and Russia are often uh, sort of depicted as a bear, aren't they? Uh, and the bear as a symbol of strength. Uh, the bear is a symbol of, you know, the woodlands of Russia. But When you go looking for this thing at play in the Old Testament, what you'll see is that generally uh, that depiction is not a positive depiction. Generally, uh, there's something a little worrying and ungodlike around the use of an animal because in the ancient world in particular, before there was the development of very sort of Christian-influenced forms of government, the people who had power (laughs) were really just the strong, right? There was no checks and balances. There was no separation of powers. There was something beastly and animalistic about someone who could rule a nation or even a tribal group. You ruled with the sword. You maintained order with the threat of violence. And we might think of someone like Putin in that regard one of the really fascinating places that this comes up in scripture is around the story of nebuchadnezzar so he is a king of babylon and you might remember that he calls on the young man daniel who becomes the prophet to interpret some dreams for him you know that some of these stories and he has this dream about uh, being wild like a beast uh, and it sort of has these overtones of him being actually exiled from his people. And anyway, not long after he has this dream, he's up, you know, on the top of one of his buildings. It says he's, he's surveying the glory and the power of the Babylonian Empire. And he actually sort of defies God in that. He says, who can be like me? Who has the power That I have and it says, and again I I would read it but um, my notes are closed. It says, to paraphrase it, that in that moment something came upon him and he was driven out into the wilderness and he lived there for seven years like a beast. It says his hair was wet with dew and he ate grass like the animals that uh, lived there in herds. So this is a motif in scripture a kind of a symbolic reality in scripture where when human beings set themselves in the face of God, when they grasp for human and worldly power, they become somehow beast-like. And that runs counter to the intention that God has for humanity. For human beings, the vision has always been from God's perspective, his, his intention in creation, that human beings are in harmony with him, are in harmony with the world around them, and they are becoming more human in the sense that, you know, we see Christ as the fully realized human being. To rebel against God, to try and be like God's ourselves, takes us in the direction of wild animals. And you see this uh, sort of juxtaposed compared in the worship life of the people around Israel and the worship life of Israel as we encounter it in the scripture. So this is the Babylonian god Marduk. If you went into a temple or a shrine for Marduk, you'd see Marduk kind of in the place of pride in the center of the temple the image of marduk was the place where you could connect with this god marduk you could give tributes to a statue like that of marduk and the idea was that by giving tributes to the statue you were giving tributes to the real god you might remember that yahweh the god of israel didn't want a temple did he the intention was that he would live with his people in the world, in creation as temple. What has pride of place in that temple? What, if anything, could be likened to an idol? Well, we wouldn't use the language of idol, but the scripture uses the language of image of God, doesn't it? The intention throughout Israel's religious practice, throughout the scriptures, And it's not just any human being, but that the human being is the closest thing to God. And uh, it's not the Jew, (laughs) it's Adam and Eve who in the narrative are as related to the Babylonian as they are to the Jew, as related to the Scandinavian as they are to the African. There's this thread in Israel's scriptures that points the reader to the fact that when we are in the presence of another human being created in God's image, how we interact with them, how we treat them, how we think about them says something about how we react to God, we think about God, how we treat God. Again, one of those things, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Beastliness in the Old Testament is the quality that begins to define us when we aren't worshipping God by loving one another. And you see that throughout history, don't you? Again, once you see it in Scripture, you can't unsee it. But you can't unsee it throughout history. That human beings rise to the top of empires. They seize tremendous power and then they crush other human beings under the wheels of that power. So, what John is saying thus far in chapter 5 that we've looked at, he cycled through a number of images that we might use to think about jesus and there's this situation now where the whole of history the future of the world and its people is kind of trapped in this scroll and everyone's saying who can open this scroll who can tell us how it's all going to end who has the power who has the authority who is qualified to begin to open this revelation to us of how it's all going to end john could go for the son of man he could go for the lion of judah could go for the root of jesse but he looks it says he looks towards the throne and what does he see i have put it in greek just to confuse you all anion anion This word is used some 30 times in the New Testament. The only time it occurs outside of the book of Revelation is in John's Gospel where John is telling the story of Jesus and some of Jesus' final words to the Apostle Peter. And he says, Peter, feed my little (laughs) lambs. Some of the other Gospels say sheep, but actually John says arnion, which means not just lamb, but little lamb. Kind of a strange picture, <laughs> really, isn't it? In a world of gods like bulls and gods like eagles and gods like lions. They're crying out, who has the power? Who has the authority? Who knows where history's going? Who has it in control? Let's look to the throne for the revelation of who. That's a little lamb. He could have even just said lamb, but he says little lamb. The reasons we might have some sort of instinct about if we've been a Christian for some time. I'm just going to spend just a few moments here looking at some of those. Well, why a lamb? A lamb is unblemished and spotless. A lamb is innocent and seemingly helpless. In Genesis and throughout the scriptures, we see the lamb as a substitutionary sacrifice In the Exodus, we encounter the use of a lamb in securing the ongoing life of God's people, the Hebrews. In the prophet Isaiah's writing, the lamb is sort of made parallel to this suffering servant, the one who would suffer for the salvation of Israel. There were lambs sacrificed in Israel's temple as an atoning sacrifice. All of those pictures speak to what John might have seen when he comes to this ultimate picture of who Jesus is, the one who has all the power and the authority he sees, a little lamb. Can you get the band on stage? One thing that needs to bottom line a reading of Revelation, one thing that needs to be a cornerstone principle, is that we need to see Jesus the way that John has Jesus revealed to him. As much as he sees Jesus any other way in this revelation from God around how it's all going to end what's going on in his world as it's turned upside down. The image he settles on is a tiny little lamb. I think we could look into this as a picture for years, really, and see new things. But I think it also just speaks to our hearts and minds in a way that barely needs explaining. <laughs> We've just celebrated Easter. It might be about as clear for us as it gets over the course of a year. That whilst history is full of tremendous suffering and hardship and violence and war, great dragons crushing The lives of thousands of people or bears devouring children in Ukraine. Political battles, elephants versus donkeys. Imperial hegemonies, eagles that seem to watch over the activities of the whole world. against that background. The one who has it all in control. The one who sees the beginning and the end. The one who will save us. He doesn't play that game, does he? Though he could. (laughs) His power is shown and his willingness to come so humbly and to lay his life down. We're going to take communion and then we're going to praise the lamb. You can do the ripping now. Jesus we thank you for your sacrifice we thank you for the humility with which you came we thank you for the way you reframe power for us we thank you that though we see beasts praying growling the whole world seems subject to such violence you have it in hand. You have it in hand. I thank you for the lives of each person here. Their eternal lives. You have their lives in your hands. Let's eat and drink.